0: Hello, and welcome to See One, one, Do One, one, Teach One, the podcast dedicated to becoming a better medical educator. With me, Pick Mukherjee and Tom Pereira.
1: In this episode, we try to improve history, which is more doable than you think.
0: So, Pick, what are we talking about today? Man, it's been a while. Uh, Today we are talking about how to improve your history taking.
1: Great. And Joe, tell us who you are. Uh, We got a guest. I
2: am honored to be here. I am Joe. I am a second year resident here. (laughs) And we're going to be talking about a case of dizziness.
1: Okay, so we will
0: talk about a case of dizziness. I think our theme is how to take a better history. And everyone says, oh, history taking is so important, it's 80% of making a diagnosis. So Vic,
1: wait, if it's 80% of the diagnosis, how do we get to a diagnosis in a patient who
0: comes in altered or in a coma? That accounts for like 10% of the rest, and that's the veterinary I don't think that's the math we're doing. Fine. It is important. We should do it better. Dizziness is like the feared complaint, so I think it's like aggressively uh, optimistic taking it on. Uh, Let's talk about how to take a great history in this case, and then we'll extrapolate.
1: Let's do the, let's talk about a history. So to start with, there are things that we are supposed to get, right? So there's a nice list of sort of CPT guidelines for the things that we are supposed to put down. And I know I am mixing billing with emergency medicine, but it is mixed.
0: Uh, you have to do it, I suppose, for billing. It would be nice if it was useful. So we can talk about what is useful amongst the, the billing criteria.
1: Great. So I got the criteria in front of me. First on the list is
0: location. Like, I was in the bank?
1: Uh, I was in
0: Florida? Latitude, 93.9. Um, uh, yeah. So location unto itself,
1: probably not very helpful. It is part of something else we're going to do later, context. But the location itself, unless it's extremely specific for that's where the nuclear device went off, doesn't really yeah, help that us. that matters. It was Fukushima after the meltdown. It was yeah. Haiti during the earthquake. This matters. That doesn't matter. But mostly not so good. Next thing on my list is quality. One of those words that I think it might be a dirty word. The quality was really good. right, so not that kind of quality, right? So a good description of what happened.
0: Fine. Uh, Symptom characterization would be a broader term than quality. So the
1: history, then, is you need the patient to,
0: in their own words, describe what the heck is going on. So you tied it into a thing we're told about the history a lot. Let the patient talk. Doctors start interrupting them within eight to 16 seconds. That's bad. Uh, Hear what they have to say about their complaint in their own words.
1: So this is the time where an open-ended question and letting the patient talk is gonna make the most difference. Let's avoid those cases where you are focused on chest pain completely and the patient really is here because they put a staple in their left hand.
0: Right, And, and this is one of the things that EM docs, I feel like, fear Because we're told we have to be efficient and we have to cut through the noise and get to the real stuff. But, you know, honestly, the non-interrupting tends to get you there faster, actually. Uh, Once you interrupt them, you never get that important piece of information until 20 minutes later. So
1: quality in terms of patient description of what's going on is very important. Next thing on my list is severity. So...
2: Is it a one out of 10 on a pain scale or how severe is it? Oh
1: my God. You have to make them draw a scale. That's face. Exactly right. But for billing purposes, I think they love it. The number isn't as important. I tell the story all the time. When I was a medical student, we had somebody come in who had been hit by a train and literally the lower part of their left leg was gone. They were a mess. They were awake. They were yelling. That is a 10. When you come in, and have stubbed your toe and say, it is a 10 out of 10, that doesn't mean as much to
0: me. Tom, how dare you put your non-objective pain scale onto the patient's non-objective pain scale? You're just subjective in a different way.
1: Yes, that is exactly true. So you bring up a really nice thing. There is a difference between a patient saying, I have pain in the abdomen, and you pushing on the abdomen and finding pain. Those are completely different things, and if I push on the abdomen and find pain, I am doing things differently. If a patient says, I have a 4 or a 5 or a a 2
0: pain in the abdomen, I am really not changing what I am doing very much. So I like two things out of that. One is, pain is not the same as tenderness, and it is a pet peeve when those two things are uh, equated when people present. The second thing is, just using the same language. A subjective grading of pain isn't the same as an objective measurement of vital signs, observation of the patient screaming and falling off the bed uh, versus calmly conversing.
1: I like that a lot. So severity is one of those things. It's a little bit, yes, what we document, maybe a number, as you were saying, Joe. But when we look at a patient who is unable to sit still because they have that kidney stone that's making them bounce all over the bed, that's severe Pain, we see it. They don't even need to say it. Even if they say it too, we are assuming that is more. So any way you can
0: objectify that severity, I think is very helpful. Objectify might be the wrong word. I don't know. All right. But but, <laughs> but Joe, if you put like 6 out of 10 chest pain, does that help you get a diagnosis?
1: Absolutely not.
0: But what if it was 8? Aha! Doesn't matter. It's right up with the white
1: count being 11.
0: Okay, But there are a few things that a 10 might make you think of. I'm told that severe pain in the chest or the back is, think of dissection. Severe pain in the head is think of subarachnoid.
1: This is basically bouncing off stuff you say all the time, which is, you as an emergency physician, when somebody gives you a 10, should think of the most dangerous thing that was going on and say, okay, could it be that? And then do your usual algorithm for figuring out whether you think it is or isn't that, usually as part of the history, it doesn't necessitate testing. But you know, you say all the time that dissections are just as likely to show up with a much lower pain number.
0: Yes, I say all the time that saying something is common uh, has nothing to do with uh, being more likely so you can say severe pain is a common description for dissection sudden severe pain saying that to an em doc is like it is okay to miss all of the ones that present weirdly which is wrong right uh so we can't fixate on that
1: yeah. we are supposed to think of the most dangerous diagnosis no matter anyway, what. anyway there you go whether somebody says it's a 10 there you go or a four you had me at chest pain let's move <laughs> on the yeah. uh, next thing on my list is duration so does duration matter
2: I think it does um, it gives kind of we we're talking about earlier, it, get, it does give context into when things started, and through that, the patient usually gives you a lot more information.
0: But that's just for cardiac, right? Because that peak care state isn't it just for cardiac oh, 10 to 15 minutes is classic and you know hours isn't, and right? So that's no, what the book says.
1: Every disease has a cycle. Uh, an ovarian cyst rupturing has a very distinct cycle. Pain that lasts seconds, even just pain that is gone by the time they get to the emergency room is very different that pain goes on.
0: So I like that a lot. I it's one of my standard pieces of advice for history taking is get a timeline. And for me, the timeline is when did this start? When were you fine? What happened, what happened, what happened? And then you're done. And you know what you get? You get context. You get triggers. You get duration. You get things that are important in a ton of diseases.
1: Okay, so so the next thing on my list is timing. And so the timing is, is when it came on and when it went away and, and all that other stuff. N- next on my list is context. And I think this is the important part. And we were making fun of location, but context is everything. It happens when I stand up. Or, or the classic joke, doctor, uh, every time I do this, it hurts. Don't do
0: that. So that's context. So for me, timeline incorporates that, right? It's a trigger because this pain happened when I did X. It's context because every time I do Y, eating makes it better or makes it worse. The timeline, what happened then, gives you all of that. And at the end, you digest it and go, oh, it seems like this is associated with, you know, when you wash your car. And they go, oh, you're right. It must be the turtle wax that I'm allergic to.
1: I I like that. I think the next thing on the list is modifying factors. And, and I use this all the time. I, I use it with chest pain all the time. Uh, I always try and find out the things that people have done to make it better or worse. And did it work? So that as a format, those things, I think, work well. Since this podcast is, what was the name of it? the
0: podcast
1: our podcast see no,
0: one no, no. do one teach what is name? No, our what was podcast. the name of this
1: episode it was improving history right improving history so this is what we do anyway what are we
0: going to do to improve
1: the history pick
0: well the history is like what happened how do you improve
1: what happened don't the victors always determine the vic- nah, that's uh, fair history? Right.
0: so if you want to be a victorious uh, resident reporter history taker uh, how do you do it? What What would you do, what would you add at the end of the history that you take
1: that would make it better?
2: Um, so one thing that I love to ask is, have you ever had this complaint or symptom before? Because it can actually clue you in. Hey, I've had this stroke, or I I've had this disease with my previous stroke. You're maybe having another stroke. Or if I've had this when I had my dissection, maybe you're having a dissection.
1: Joe, I love it. Because the number of times that I have sat and spent eight minutes, which is, for me, a really long time getting a history. And just at the end, they say, yeah, every time I get this, they say it's this, and this works great. Uh, And I'm like,
0: why didn't you start with that? Didn't want to lead the witness. I also have a CT from this place three hours ago. But, you know, I don't want to fool you. Uh, you should draw your own conclusions.
1: Yeah, when I when I say, oh, well, we're going to get a CAT scan, and they say, oh, I just had one.
0: No, or, or, or they, <laughs> they say, I'm going to not tell you about my old CAT scan until we see what this one says, because then we'll be sure.
1: That is one of the absolute best
0: ways to improve a history. Maybe it's part of your history now. So so uh, my my thing is always, when did this start, and then what happened, which just plays into my timeline thing, right? So, so talk about... Talk about the timeline. You get a regular history then, top to
1: bottom, and then at the end, if you want to improve that history, what's the line you use to, to
0: make this work? How do you do it? So it's, it's, it is a framework for how to take the history. When I present the case, I tell it pretty much like that, like they told it to me, like a story, which helps me remember it too. So, so a lot of the things that you don't know about in the history taking uh, that you have to go back for. I wonder if uh, the back caused this. Uh, when was that? I wonder if this activity uh, really made it better. When was that? You're going back. Uh, so I invest a little time structuring so you start, the timeline. So you
1: start the end of your history with, let's review. This is what you told me. I, uh, but, but, but how do you force the
0: timeline part of it? When did this start? So you were well before that? Oh, actually, it was uh, this day I was little. Okay, so 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 that's when you were it started. Before that, you were fine. Then what happened? And then I just say, and then what? Like 17 times in a row, and then I walk out of the room, and I have the history.
1: So there will be people who say, ah, I don't have time for that.
0: So this technique actually has a name. It's called the chronology of present illness. It's been described uh, and, and popularized. There's a guy named Dr. Skeff at Stanford uh, who writes about this. For internal medicine... They, the, the history begins at, you know, in 1989, I first had a knee pain and then I saw the, and, and you know I, I know like,
1: I love that you're saying 1989, like it's a long time ago. And I, I think it was like yesterday. I was
0: recently called out for, for <laughs> calling the IRAD recent data. Cause it started in the nineties yeah, and they said that go. was 30 years ago. I was uh, not born in
2: 1989.
0: <laughs> I, I really, you're making me angry, Joe. Thanks. <laughs> um, So Dr. Skeff actually proposed this to IM and their thing was, oh, this takes extra time in the beginning, but it actually saves you later. For EM though, the extra time is, this started like an hour ago or three days ago. The investment upfront is more than paid for by the number of times I have to go back in that room. Uh, By the way, donning and doffing has doubled my efficiency uh, with that technique. In COVID times, going back in the room is an extra three minutes to don and doff to go back in the room. I I think
1: that the main thing that Pick is saying is you have to be exceptionally exhaustive in forcing people to give this timeline. And for some reason, patients don't fall into this timeline easily. It is not a typical way of telling a story because uh, it lacks a good punchline.
0: I, I think that's totally fair. And we all know the number of times that people stop telling the story of what happened yesterday morning and go... But now it's terrible, you know, leaving out the 18,000 motrons they took in between then and now. Or in 1989, when my daughter, I remember like yesterday, because it was her graduation day, and you're like, but, but tell me about the ripping in the back, please? So there is some redirection that happens, but I'll, I'll be honest, it is less than I think I had before I try to get the timeline.
1: So my way to improve the history is a little different. I like to ask the patient, what do they think is going on? And along the line is not only what do they think is going on, what are they worried about, what do they want to get out of this visit? Because the number of times that I go back with discharge instructions, ready to send somebody home telling them, don't worry, this is not your heart. And they go, well, I knew that. What I really was worried about was this other thing. And and so if you start out with patient expectations, if you start out knowing what the patient wants explained to them, I think your efficiency can go
0: up considerably. I think that's such a great tip. And it's such a nice, like, patient-centered, make-people-happy tip. And you're shocked sometimes. You sew up someone's cut and you're like, this is what you got to do for the sutures. And at the end, uh, anything else you worry about? Do I have cancer? What are you talking about? I took a piece of glass out of you. And they're like, well, you know, Cousin Billy bled for nine minutes in a row and he had leukemia. And you're like, oh, no. Like, dude, relax. It was an artery. That happens.
1: So, so those are a bunch of ways to improve the history. Weirdly, we haven't done the dizziness thing. We will do that in the next section. <laughs> See?
0: 1989 wasn't that long ago. I have no idea what song that is. Damn you, Joe. Like, how old are you going to make me feel today? This is like... Come on, love Shack! Oh, uh, I think d-
1: 1989 was yesterday, which probably means that I'm in the category of people who will get MRIs every time I get a headache and dizziness, which brings us back to dizziness.
2: Joe. I have a case. There was this 60-something-year-old female, history of hypertension and diabetes, who came to the ER for four days of dizziness. She actually had already seen her neurologist that day of the visit, and was recommended to come to the ER to evaluate for a stroke. On my neuro exam she essentially was totally neuro intact except that she had horizontal nystagmus. I was concerned that she potentially could be having a stroke but my attending thought that it was more peripheral because the symptoms kind of all pointed to it. Worse with head movements, sudden onset, but the one thing that did make me think it was a stroke was the constant nature of the symptoms.
1: Okay, this is when somebody comes, this is a bunch of different things. One is when someone comes in from a neurologist and saying, I'm worried about a stroke, I think we are absolutely headed in one way. I don't even need to use half a brain cell. That being said, dizziness in the setting like this is exactly, fits into our theme for the day, improving your history.
0: Dizziness is definitely one of those complaints that I, I feel like it's weird that so many people don't, like to go see. They think it's vague. They think it's hard to put your thumb on. It's like, I don't know where we're going with this. And I, I like this case, although I agree with you, Tom. If you come from the neuro office with a note that says, I'm having a stroke, if I disagree, it is hard to not pursue that. But, but most of our patients are, are fresh off the boat. Uh, we, we don't have that uh, pre-exam uh, going on. So I would say that this is one of the ones where my advice I give for every patient is actually super important. The timeline... And I'm going to focus on something that Joe said right at the end. The symptom was constant. There were times that they thought something made it worse. There was a sudden onset, but it never really went away. That right there makes me worry about a a central process.
1: So again, I, I want to get the idea of how you get them to give you an exacting timeline. How do you do that?
0: When did this start? It started uh, at this time when I did the thing, and then what happened? Well, it was much worse later. No, no, no. What happened? What did you do after you got dizzy in the bathroom? You walk back to the bed. Then you lay in the bed for an hour because you were weak. Then you try to get out of the bed, and it all came back. Oh, now I'm drawing a little graph in my head for symptoms that are waxing and waning, worse and better. I'm making the timeline.
1: I think that, that that's really nice way to put it. The timeline is really important in this particular history. So in the podcast, we are thinking about putting in a new section. Uh, our new section is going to be uh, disease or symptom-based specific teaching ideas for you, our audience, on how to teach this disease in terms of what's most important. So for dizziness we are going to we are going to break things into the the novice learner and the seasoned learner in terms of what we are going to say
0: great so if you have to teach someone who is a novice at this i don't know what level they are a uh, med student uh, up then uh, you have you have 2 minutes 3 minutes to tell them these are the most important not miss things that you're going to look for right. what So you a
1: novice walks in the room and you always want them in their head to be thinking about the diagnosis that are most concerning with this disease. The, the classic, uh, this is what's going to kill you sort of stuff. So for dizziness, Joe, what are the things that are the two points that you want your novice learner thinking about when they walk in the room? I want them to think about stroke. And the second one is if they're in any way hemodynamically unstable. Great. So, so you've incorporated all the neurodiagnosis with stroke. And with hemodynamic instability, you're basically taking out all of the cardiac and uh, intravascular causes of the presyncope side of dizziness. So, pick why are we not just doing the dizzy room spinning versus I feel like I'm going to pass out dichotomy?
0: Well, those things are what we, I think, taught people to do is get the, the symptom characteristic, the quality. Uh, And if they say spinning and unsteady, it's this category of neural things. And if they say lightheaded passing out, it's this category. Right,
1: and that is in a perfect world. So the novice deals with the perfect world. So knowing when they walk in that stroke or things that cause hemodynamic instability are the things that do that. So if you're going to distinguish these two things, what is it that you need to do? What things do you need to do on every patient with dizziness to make these distinctions? We need a really good and thorough neuro exam. You mean the kind that Pick does, where he just sort of has the patient pick their own nose, and if they can do that, they're fine?
2: I'm talking about medical student level, full cranial nerve exam, and importantly, walk the patient.
0: Okay, so neuro exam is number one. So that's the, I wonder if we're in the brainland. I really like, by the way, Joe's two things, because one is the brain stuff, and one is the cardiovascular stuff. That's a great dichotomy. Uh, So just saying, hey, this could be there is is fine. The the really good neuro exam focuses on the brain stuff. Uh, For the heart stuff, for the cardiovascular stuff, you're looking for, if they're not hemodynamically unstable in front of you, you're again looking for triggers and things you can do to them to reproduce their symptom. Uh, Whether that's, hey, I feel it coming, and the monitor shows that now their heart rate's 220, or whether it's when I do this movement to them, right? that's a reproduction of the symptom.
1: So that's great. Before your novice learner goes in there, you as the teacher should make sure they start with these things. It will make the whole thing goes better. Now let's move to your seasoned learner.
0: Okay, so this is where, because they are good at recognizing the, the severe elements of the, of the illness, oh, this guy's going to die of X, Y, Z, they know they don't have those things. There's no obvious stroke finding. There's no obvious human dynamic instability. So now they go back to the symptom characterization, which doesn't work for this disease. Patients who say spinning, we know and have studied, flip their descriptions in the same visit.
1: You mean Uh, when I ask them, were you spinning? And they say, yes. And then, do you think you were about to pass out? And they also
0: say, yes. So we tell them, don't lead the witness. Describe your dizziness. Just sit back and they're going to punch you. I was just dizzy. No, tell me what kind of dizziness, damn you. Uh, And then finally they go, fine. I was like lightheaded, like I was going to black out. And you go, thank you. And you call cardiology. And what happens? Eight minutes later, the cardiologist walks out of the room, walks up to you and goes, Clear as day, they said, spinning around in a circle, don't you even talk to your patients, and they walk away.
1: Leading the witness is a big problem. I think with symptom characteristics, it goes back to what we said earlier in the podcast about quality. It is a time to let the patient put things in their own words, so I think
0: that's great. But in this case, even that doesn't work. You should not lead the witness. You should try to get the best thing. You need to start somewhere. But but in this case, you can't hang your hat on brain or cardiovascular with the phrase, because they flipped the phrase, which makes the, I'm sorry, I'm just going to harp here, the timeline, the chronology, the triggers, the pattern so important. So I'm going to fixate on the last thing Joe said, the dizziness never went away. It was a constant dizziness.
1: So I also agree with you that this is in the seasoned learner, which I love that you've let me get away with just starting calling people
0: seasoned learner. Yeah, that sounds like veteran, grizzly veteran, expert, expert. Wizards. They're experts. Wizard. They're wizards. Master, wizard masters. Grandmaster wizards. Assassins.
1: No, 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 that's Ooh. bad. <laughs> so going back to that idea of constant dizziness, which Joe said right up front. I think this is really important. And it became even more important as we got introduced to the hints exam. The hints exam, residents love to to come out of the room with someone with dizziness and said, I just did the hints exam and they threw up all over the floor. In which case, I'm going to say, you probably did the hints exam on somebody who had uh, stuttering dizziness. And, and the hints exam shouldn't even be done on that patient.
0: I like the idea that, that that's just the wrong patient populace for that test. If, if you think the patient might have a stroke because they have constant non-remitting dizziness... Doing the HINTS exam to figure that out is is a recommended maneuver, and some people have reported it is as good a sensitivity as an MRI. If you are a neuro-ophthalmologist. Okay, then now we get to the you did it, but did you really? So the,
1: the HINTS exam and other testing you do is going to be completely dependent on whether or not it was intermittent dizziness or not intermittent dizziness. So the other key important thing from a teaching point of view about this case has to do with the fact about you and your attending disagreeing on what you thought was going on. Right, and so I think one of
2: the, again, with the history, the the constant nature of her dizziness made me believe that we should pursue a CT, CTA. My attending thought it was more peripheral. And so how did that all turn out? Ultimately, we got the reads back and it did show evidence of a posterior stroke. We did get our neurology team involved, but obviously because it was four days of symptoms, no thrombolytics, we did end up admitting her.
1: So it is definitely one of those times, and, and dizziness is one of those complex diagnoses where that definitely happens.
0: And I think that sometimes there's all these, I think it's this, I think it's that, uh, and then we ignore that for both of the doctors, you need the attending, the patient was above the test threshold. In this case, the neuro note might have pushed this patient above the test threshold.
1: Right, so there is a huge difference between... I think someone has a disease. I think someone doesn't have a disease. And whether or not I need to go on and pursue the disease. Uh, we definitely believe with a ton of chest pain, I think this is probably the baseball that hits you in the chest. But you were playing baseball and you're 87 years old, so I just want to make sure that it's not cardiac. The right
0: thing to do is make sure you're getting the right test. I can't tell you how much I agree with your sentiment and hate your example. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it hurts here at the bruise where the baseball hit the just, but you're 80, so I have to, oh my God, I want to kill you. Okay, we are up to the not a thing part. Do we have a not a thing? What's our yes, not well a thing? Well, since we're
1: doing dizziness, this is easy, right? We'll just take it from the previous discussion. We're not really phoning in,
0: man. Gonna re-
1: <laughs> not a thing in this case is go in there and figure out where we need to go with this by asking, is it spinning or did you feel like you're going to pass out?
0: Right, okay. So the not a thing is uh, you can't figure out the dichotomy by asking
1: that. I'm saying there isn't a dichotomy. Uh, Even if you look in the textbooks, there is a third category of dizziness, which they call dizziness and giddiness, which basically is not a room spinning and not passing out, but somewhere in
0: between. But but wait, I think there's a type four dizziness that is indescribable, but it's treated with Xanax, apparently. Well, I actually
1: think that most things... Can
0: be treated with Xanax. It can so be, fits. versus the book says, give them some Xanax. It's okay, a little weird. so,
1: but the, the it's not a thing is this whole idea of a dichotomy. So, Joe, do you have a, a it's not a thing that's different? I have a it's not a thing. Saying that you did a
2: complete neuro workup and it's, uh, I'm sorry, neuro physical exam and it's negative without
1: walking the patient, that's not a thing. So this is, I've, I've been run into this constantly, good. right? You think you've done a neuro exam, they're talking well, they're moving all four, and and it takes until you walk the patient. And, and I had a patient literally fall into the
0: wall the other day. So I, I would agree uh, that that is an important thing and not something that I always expect the residents to routinely have done. Uh, just logistically, but I will put it in the category of stuff that has to happen before they leave, like a P.O. trial, this guy's going to go home after the GI cocktail, but asterisks, did they put something in there and not puke it up again? So I, I tell them that the IV does not come out until they have walked to the bathroom and changed, and then we will hand them papers.
1: Okay, so the It's Not a Thing, though, is a full neuro exam without doing a full neuro exam. Fair enough. We are to the
0: place, what are we going to try today? Tom?
1: I am going to watch a resident or trainee do an entire neuro exam. I realized as we were talking that when somebody says I did a neuro exam and uh, it is negative or it is positive, I have actually no idea what tests they have actually done. And I think of everything else that the sensitivity and specificity of this exam
0: changes completely on how much of it you do. I love it. And I feel like the COVID time has me in the room with the resident more often. So I can actually observe the exams. I love it.
2: Joe. I am not going to try to lead the witness or the patient. And that by that, I mean actually listen to the patient when they're describing their symptoms. I think as residents, a lot of times we're pressured to see patients more quickly, but if we take the extra two to three
1: minutes to listen to the patient, it'll benefit both us and the patient. That's excellent, and what you just said is right. It's going to be an extra minute, an extra two minutes. It's going to be very short,
0: really, and it's worth it. Pick? Good news is, Joe, if you go past 16 seconds, you're already better than average. The bar is low. I am going to try to prime the person going in the room and if they're a novice, I'm going to give them a a, here is your template for badness and then run and get me. And if they're a more seasoned grizzly wizard, uh, I'm going to give them a subtle finding for differentiating things because they are operating at a high level. Okay, thanks for listening. Go out there and make better doctors. Get out there and make doctors better.